Hi, everybody. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 25th, 2022. We're back from summer break. Today, we welcome Andrew Maurer, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Florida. His work has visited a, a wide range of topics, including dynamics of population activity in dopaminergic neurons, effects of ketogenic diet on the brain, vagus stimulation effects on learning, and the function of the hippocampus and related structures in memory and some other things. One thread that connects all, of, or at least most of these things, is the, uh, is the rejection of the sort of linear feed-forward model of neural connections and embracing the reentrant, recurrent, the structure of brain circuits that drives oscillations and more complicated patterns like turbulence. In the hippocampus, reentrant collective activity of cell populations is often assessed from oscillatory field potentials. And I think this is largely what we'll be talking about today, but who knows? So welcome, Drew. Welcome, thanks to be here. Also with us today is Francesco Civelli, UTSA's own expert on hippocampus dynamics. Hello. Hi, Francesco. Hi. And James Jones, a PhD student in the neuroscience program at UTSA. Hi, James. Hi. I'm Charlie Wilson. So, Drew, regular listeners to the audio podcast have most recently heard a retrospective on a podcast we recorded with the late, great John Lisman back in 2008. At that time, John was working on his now classic work on the theta-gamma coding idea in the hippocampus. The key part of this was the idea that the meaning of an action potential in a hippocampal neuron was embedded in its relative timing to the ongoing theta oscillation rather than just to its rate. And he thought neurons on the receiving end of those hippocampal neurons ought to have access to their own copy of the theta oscillation, perhaps at phases different from the one at the origin, so that they could use it to decode the phase information on their inputs. In our podcast, John argued the case for studying coding schemes of this sort as opposed to rate codes. So this was 14 years ago, and I'm sure that a lot of things have changed. But Drew and Francesco, could the two of you start by bringing us up to date on theta oscillations that theta phase and the language of the hippocampus neuron as we know it now. Is that a fair question? It is. It is. Yeah. But I, I will defer to first to oh, I, is, I mean, yeah, this is, this is a lot to unpack. Um, yeah, <laughs> it is. I, I, I think it was for the idea at the time was avant-garde, right? It was the, and I, people were very much working to reconstruct the rat's position based on the knowledge of when the neuron fired an exponential. And they found out that they can improve that a little bit by using the phase information. And I think John's idea was, was very much along these lines in which uh, you could have a rate code, but you could improve that code if you include the phase in which the neuron fired all through data. Yeah. Um. And he, he, he discussed multiple coding schemes. I almost, and I, I think somebody asked him a question about how many coding schemes are there. <laughs> and he, he, showed, uh, he showed his... Um, his comedic deference in the as you replying to that answer. I, and, and so I'll, I'll ask Francesco, how many coding schemes are there? Oh, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I think probably you can find many. I think I think the, the, the holy grail is to find one that has, let's say, um, I, I, I would, I would, I would try to say uh, purposeful readout, right? Because I mean, there's a lot going on in the brain, 
and it correlates with internal or external variables. So, I mean, to really know which scheme the brain is using, somehow you gotta catch the brain using it. Yeah. And I think that's still what is missing. And that's, and I don't know if I'm anthropomorphizing in a way, it's just because you, know, you always think about like, okay, you're always trying to put the homunculus back into the brain, saying purposeful readout. But I don't know that I have a better way to think about this. Like, how do you know what this, the, the neural coding scheme that matters is if you don't know what matters to the brain, at least in the context of some function? So I really think, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really definitely interested in all the temporal um, strategies of encoding information. I think it's really important. I consider, for example, face precession of place cells like one of the, I mean, probably the, the most important observation in the physiology of the hippocampus after the observation of place cells. Hmm. So J- John interpreted phase precession in a kind of funny way, I thought. I mean, it didn't sound that familiar to me. He was saying that the phase told you about how far into the future the hippocampus cell is yeah. predicting. So where does that idea come from? And is that still a, an idea about phase precession, that it has to do with time, uh, not place, or time and place? The idea of it predict- anticipating the future is that uh, if you had three cells that were overlapping, A, a B, and C, and there were, they were overlapping so the rat would run into place field A first, then B, and C, but they overlap spatially, within each theta cycle, it would fire A, B, C, and the next cycle, A, B, C. And so what you would see is if you took your temporal window and looked at really small, you would see these little sequences of activity that repeat each theta cycle. And it was as if the rat was replaying or anticipating the future trajectory by providing this little sweep forward. And we're looking to see, looking to forward to see, and then eventually A would stop firing and then you'd have place field D pick up. And so the rats begin the trajectory, the sequence of activity begins to anticipate place field D. And it, I think that idea is pretty much, I would wager that most, most uh, card care neurophysiologists would agree with that um, description today. Yeah, I think it's there. The, the issue is, I think, I don't know if I'm characterizing this problem correctly, but I think the issue is also... Um, you get that sequences as a byproduct of the place cells engaging in phase precession. So because there is phase precession, then automatically you get, as a fallout, you get those sequences in the phase or you get phase precession because there is this kind of like sequence action of the, the, the cells propagating, the activity propagating into these um, routes in the network, you know, paths in the network. And so I don't know that the, we have an answer to that. I mean, it's like, um, but um, I think, again, when I say that is the freeze precession, I consider it in a way the most important observation. I mean, it's really telling us something, which we don't know what it is, but somehow you know that it's telling us something. And, um, you know, again, it goes back to, is it epiphenomenal or is it purposeful? And whatever that means, you know, like, but, 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 you know, does that say where I think about it? It's like, and so, 
it might be epiphenomenal, but then it's telling us something about the dynamics of the circuit. Or it could be like something that is really shaping up some packets of information in some way that is relevant to cognition, for example, um, of some sort. So if the theta is putting a timestamp on spikes and that's part of the code, yeah. then doesn't the neuron that's receiving that information also need to have a copy of that clock to know what the phase is of its incoming synapses? So John said, yeah, maybe all the different targets have theta oscillation at different phases, and they read out the neuron that's telling the future, the present, and the past. I think that's what Francesco was touching on, and that, that, that's almost what's missing. That's a, a direct hypothesis is we should eventually find these neurons that were, are sensitive to that afferent input, and I don't think we have yet. No. So there is, a, there is this study by... Um, Tingley and Usagi's lab. So they looked at um, the, um, the relationship between hippocampus and the um, lateral septum. If I'm correct, it's lateral mm-hmm. septum, right? And um, so they found cells in the lateral septum that um, they have the phase precession. So they have the kind of rate, uh, sorry, the uh, temporal code, the phase code. Um, but, you know, as the rat was running around, um, you didn't have a lot of graded firing rate um, uh, differences. And so, um, you know, one, um, one explanation of that was exactly what Lisman was saying, which is, see, when it's communicating to another structure, it'll, the firing rate modulation does not matter. What matters is this temporal code. Um, you know, there's, but there was still rate modulation in the distributions of, of the of the of the plots and um, um, and and so you always wonder like the lateral septum is kind of a smaller structure gets input from all hippocampus is it possible that these was you know places that have such a big place fields mm-hmm. that extended incorporated the entire apparatus right because when you look at the distribution there was some rate modulation but I think the 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 I think the, 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 what is really missing, the most important question is, um, you know, you can think about, there is a lot that has been done about um, this phase code and the ability of relating to sequences. And so the idea is that, is the hippocampus about sequences? And so like if you have a rat running on a track, the succession of place cells spatially is just one way, one, one instantiation of this ability of the hippocampus to create sequences. It's nothing special about space, or is it the other way around? You know, the the old the the, the carbon map theory. You know, you know this, the the spatial framework is you know fundamental constituent of ingredient of the of the of the of the memory. And and I think, you know, I think I was talking to you the other day. You know, if we, you know, this can only be resolved if we look at the animal going in a two dimensional environment. Right, because now what is phase precession in two dimension? There are some studies, very few studies that have analyzed it. But you know the place fields are small, so the animal is kind of traversing. I think it's still like we don't have a very good grasp of what phase precession or what this sequence encoding would be in two dimension. And the reason I insist on that is that yes, you might say the firing rate does not matter, but it exists. You know, the place cell fires when the animal goes back there, no matter what path the animal has taken. So there is path equivalence, 
that is what is in, in essence the allocentric property of this finding, which is what defines, inspires the idea of the cognitive map. And so, so okay, I'm perfectly happy to try to reconcile sequences with the cognitive map, but the fact is, when it's finding that if you get a grid cell, as people say, okay, you know, that's not what the brain sees when a grid cell fires, because that's an average that the experimenter has done. But it is true that those locations are pretty stable, so when the animal goes back, no matter what the path, so there is an allocentric definition. So now the question is, when it comes to phase precession, is phase precession, this is, are they allocentric or not? Nobody has looked at it. I don't even know how exactly to frame that question, but it's like, it's true that you can add positional information through phase precession. Can you do it also in 2D and how well? And if not, well, yeah. if it is, well, then we know that we can reconcile cognitive map with this sequence and temporal code. If it's not, then it means that the rate is telling you something more yeah, than the be, temporal code. You would be breaking the Jensen and Lisman reconstruction paper by showing that phase. Yeah, that's true. So what, what, what Francesco is saying is um, we, we very much get fixated on our, our, our favorite experimental approaches. And when we have rats running linear tracks, it's easy to have place cells firing sequences. But now if we're in two dimensions and my rat's foraging for chocolate sprinkles in the environment, and I have I have one place field here and another place field here, my rat can run this way and it can run this way. And so in, the, in one instance, A fires before B and the other is B fires before A. The other thing that's happening that's interesting is the neuron always fires at a latent phase as it enters the field. Now, if it enters the field, it would fire early here. If it entered the field here, it would fire early here. Then the phase gets dissociated spatial position. So then you would break the, you would you would actually have an instance where you would include a new variable, the yeah. phase in which the neuron fired, and you would but you would increase your uncertainty about where the you would may not improve your certainty about where the end right. was. So yeah, exactly. So does this argument that the temporal code adds, um, you know, improves the estimate? Like does that. it does it extend to two dimension? Or if not, well, then we have found a case in which the rate code tells you something more than the temporal code because it's still that cell knows where the animal is. I don't know whether the animal knows where it is because that cell is fine, but I know that cell knows, so to speak. Of I also think if, I, it seems to me that if if we took the phase code seriously, we would make a heat map of phase instead of a heat map of rate. So when you make a if people make a place cell diagram, they show some heat map, how fast the neuron was firing depending on where the rat was. I've never seen one where they show the phase on theta as a function of where the rat is. I, I, I'll send you a picture. It's a, it was a Skaggs 1996. He color-coded phase. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And he made like little, it was, uh, so he did, he did a, a descending phase and rising phase, and he colored them as two colors, and there was an annulus around the um, around the center of the food. So there's a big red on the outside and a blue in the center. That was still at Maids, right? No, it was, it was, it was 2D. Yeah, it was 2D. Okay. But, um, yeah, and so that, and so when Francesca brings that up, I start to think like, yeah, no, he's, but, and you said another interesting thing, you said homunculus, because a code always implies a reader, right? Yeah. So who, who's reading the code? And we, we, we make it the, re I, I always think when I use the word code, I, I, I mean that for me, but I don't know if the brain's using that code. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so like I'm aware that I'm at risk of you know just falling into that. Okay, I'm trying to put the mongoose back and expecting that. But at the same time, I don't know how to break out of that way of thinking because in the end, if I'm trying to, well, and then it goes back to a bigger question, right? You know, it's like why is it that everything that happens in the brain and neuron firing it has to have a representation or something. Who reads the reader? Who encodes the encoder? Who trains these representations? You know, I'm 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 wary of pushing the computational interpretation too much. But let's just say, you know, you're writing a, a program, right? Doing something, data analysis, whatever you want. Are all the variables that you use about representing the salient information, how many variables you use just to do auxiliary operations? And so it's like, that's always like when they say, oh, thalamus has these many cells and cortex has so many more cells and or whatever, it's like, but this is information. So, okay, maybe there is a redundancy for error correction or whatever, but maybe Cortex is doing something and needs variables to do that. I know I'm pushing the computational idea too much. And there is always this question about like, you know, is really algorithms and data separated in the brain or is it more like, you know, it's something together. I think we talked about in another podcast about this, so I'm not gonna repeat myself, but, you know, is, it does it really have to? When neuron firing is a computation or is it data? It's like, is it an algorithm or is it data? It's like, so it goes back to that. So are we trying to? I mean, if we're trying always to think about everything neuron does is a, some kind of neural coding, coding or what? You know, it's like it's just. Um, so yes, I think I, I mean one of the things that strikes me about almost everything that that could be called neural correlative behavior kind of mm -hmm. research is that somebody's recording a neuron in some kind of consequential situation for an animal and then they say well this neuron has in its firing some information about this and 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 so you can do that you can pull that out you can show yes if as an observer i can know this about the animal and that about the world and that and that but the question is whether those things that that neuron is uh, embedding in its firing are actually used by anybody yeah. to do anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a, it's it seems almost necessary to look at the next yeah. at the next place. But of course, what the, one of the things Drew points out is <laughs> there isn't really a next place. There's everything is kind of the same place. I always thought that everybody everybody loved the homunculus argument so much right. that it either the homunculus either ended up being the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus. You just keep rallying it up the chain until you find the executive, and somehow it just figures things out. But yeah, with, with a loop, it ends up being a very distributed process. Um, it, it, it's in that way, it's, it, it, things get interesting when you never the you were saying is it the algorithm or can you expand on that the algorithm or the data? Yeah. So um, and this is really goes uh, even in cognitive science. You know, a lot of a lot of neuros, some a lot of neurophysiologists don't. You know, there's just really that a rivalry between cognitive scientists and, and neurophysiologists, which you know I don't necessarily buy into. But you know, the idea of the cognitive science is like you know all the cognitive operation can have a computational representation. So it's like this computational process and a representation. So in a way, in computer science terms, it's like, okay, you got an algorithm and you got data that work on the, on the uh, you got an algorithm that works on data. And so the question is, in the, in the brain, um, you know, there's neural firing, 
you know, and it's, it's, where is the data? Where is the algorithm? What is the computational process that acts on, you know, some kind of representation? Are they really that separated or is it like more everything together? You know, like, so, um, yeah. That's, that's so I'd, I'd like to know how, how you get them to be both in the same in the same thing. You know, I think of, uh, if I'm a neuron, my inputs are the data. Okay. And the algorithm is whatever I use to make my firing pattern based on those inputs. Okay. Is there a way as a neuron that I could be the, the algorithm and the data at the same time, other than just by... Well, basically, you're saying, well, okay, so that's one view which is perfectly, you know, set to, I'm sure it happens probably in the brain somewhere, but it's like you get your data as your spikes and you see the neuron as a computational unit that then transforms that into something else and there is an output. But, you know, people also study about the input of a network, right? So you, people talk about computational operations of a network. So like, you know, you know, people are just like, okay, can you do a division? Can you go, you know, all that kind of stuff? And people use, say, okay, you can make it in a dendrite versus you can make it in a network. So now if you're talking about a network doing some, so now those neurons, what role do they have? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and, and. Because and the network so, is creating data for itself. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So, so it's just hard to separate what we call an algorithm from data. So, but 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 is this even relevant? You know, like it's I mean, as just an academic point or uh, a philosophical, a philosophical point. But you know, it is I think in my opinion relevant to the extent that we have this tendency of, you know, looking at you know what the neuron does and trying to, you know, think that that's just coding for something. You know, that activity is coding for something, and so. Um, you know, that's not everybody, you know, like the recent work by Buzaghi, for example, it's just like, okay, no, we don't, we don't want to look at that things that way. Um, but there is still this kind of thing. We were influenced by communication yeah. technology. Like right from the very beginning, Sherrington was impressed with the telephone network and the... World War II. And, we, and we've just kill. been more and more interested in communication technology and thinking of the brain as a communication machine. Mm-hmm. I just can't think of a, an alternative way to think about it other than... Why, so I think yeah. you have to start stripping out the codes and the encoder and the decoder. And I, I, I've been toying around with this idea of... Um, it, I I was never I was taught in school to never use the definition uh, use the word in its own definition right <laughs> I, and but what I what I start thinking about what the brain does is almost being circular it's almost self referential uh, I like uh, the visual cortex eventually projects to the hippocampus and the hippocampus projects up the visual cortex and by taking these they it, it knows it got that stimulus because the hippocampal neuron fired the hippocampal neuron helps the visual cortex know it's correct by sending a feedback. And so they're almost, they're almost pointing at each other like, I know I'm right because you're right. And so then what you end up with is a distributed system where... No wonder we're wrong so much. <laughs> yeah, because we're all wrong, so we're all pointing at get away from each other. So would you guys suggest that we move towards trying to record network activity? I mean, people have been recording neuron activity, and it sounds like both of you are considering the network and the importance of the network and that the neuron might just be one like facet or projection of the network onto some way that we can visualize it easily. I guess uh, if we're going to move towards the network, what 
are there like approaches right now in the hippocampal field that are being used? Like I know neuropixels is like a new technique that's come out that allows for recording of multiple neurons. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, like, it, yeah. It's still neurons, right? Yeah. So is, is there such a thing as a network with beyond the neurons that you could measure and query about things? Or is it really just neurons? But one of the things that John Lisman said in the podcast that we are referring to a lot was when you look, take a look at the brain, open it up and look in there, there's just a bunch of what's in there. It's just a bunch of cells, right? And so he started out by saying that. And to, to some extent, that's true. The network is, a, is something we... It's a kind of a construct that we we made up. What we can see is in there is some cells. Connected. Yeah, so tell me why... Connected? Yeah, yeah. There's way more synapses than there are neurons. Yeah. So So. if you... you, but But still, there's nothing to measure except the neurons. There's not some magical emergent something there that the neurons don't make. No, like, hovering aura or... Uh, yeah, I guess to like rephrase my question. Well, you know, you measure neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Not neuron. Neurons. Oh, so your issue is just that I everybody has to measure two neurons, and not one. Neuron. No. Well, the question is like you know, there's there is there is a lot that you know the, the issue is like is there multiple neurons uh, connected to each other? Do they? What do they do? Because why are they connected to each other? What do they do connected to each other? There's so much that a neuron... Mm-hmm. I mean, even just like, you can depending on at what level you unpack your universe, right? You know, you can take a neuron, I call it, you know, and you could think of it perhaps as a network of ion channels. Yeah. But, you know, you think about yeah. neurons, like, you know, you just go, there's a universe there, right? So the, 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 the issue is like always, um, okay, if you have a lot of neurons, what is that they are? Are they cooperating in somehow? Yeah. You know, why, why, is, a, why is it if I look at different place cells, you know, if I look at three place cells in one environment and I look now, I can look only at what two are doing in another environment, they don't tell me what the third one does. But yeah. in grid cells, they actually, I can predict what the third one does because, you know, they, they remain coherent. What does that mean? Why why does it do it that way in one way? What does it do it the way or another way? So there is like some operation that the network does. And so that's just like you can you, you need to study those things in a way to just kind of observe as many neurons as possible at the same time. But I agree, you're still observing what the diff, what the single neurons that do and you're just putting everything together. You know, conceptually the idea that neurons act as a group and do things in it network isn't new at all. I mean, it's, it's part of sharing. It's not like we made up, we've made this huge conceptual breakthrough and we suddenly realize now that neurons are connected and they work together as a group. What's new is just the ability to record the activity of lots of neurons at once. Right. And so the, I would not call that a conceptual breakthrough. I would call that maybe a technical That's breakthrough. That's a technical breakthrough. Yeah, no, sure. I mean that there is a technical breakthrough, but but then um, there are all new things that you might learn about how the brain works when you look at many neurons at the same time. Um, you know, the same way you know you just learn so many more things about the neuron where you can do I don't know, intracellular recording versus extracellular recording, right? So it's just like 
you can observe more and hopefully something. But but your question was like, um, well, what about um, methods, concepts? Just well, like, I'll apply the question like, um, are there any uh, cool new results about uh, networks of hippocampal neurons? Like people have recorded single neurons and and they fire preferentially at a certain place. And that's a very cool finding and it's been repeated like a ton of times. Are there findings now that show like interesting dynamics between those neurons and their respective place fields? Like, uh, I guess I, what, what is it? What does the field look like right now in terms of like network recordings and results from those? Recording. So, so I mentioned. I think you know. For example, one um, striking thing is this: a bit, you know, just grid cells seems to be very concerted activity. Mm-hmm. So that the, the 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 relationships of the map, the maps, the firing rate maps, okay, of, of two grid cells mm-hmm. um, remain uh, constant. And if you know, with some caveats, but you know, they remain constant. If they're if they're grid cells, so-called in the same so-called module, in in different environments, so it's like a rigid system to some extent. It's a constrained system. Grid cells don't do that. Don't have that. Or at least, um, you know, I would say it's like you know, most of the consensus that they don't have. As a matter of fact, you know, they have this ability of re. Um, um, Re, re, uh, reshaping the old code. Um, there is some data that indicated that at a very local level that might not be true, but you know, in 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 general, it's just such a big difference, right? So, what is it telling us? And again, we don't, we don't know. It's like a phase precession, right? But it's telling us something about how the circuit is organized, and potentially something about functional, you know, the function of, of all this. Um, so, yeah. So, if we carry this right to to its ultimate extreme, we would see all the neurons all the time, and then we could do the same old experiment we always did: have a rat run on a track or have a rat forage in a space. And now we would see the entire network doing what it would do, and we'd see what was invariant in the network and what varied depending on what the rat was doing, and. Um, that seems like a valuable technical goal. And it seems like the goal that has been adopted. It's just that we're not quite to record yeah, all the neurons. Yet. I always in the introduction to the Brain Initiative, Alan and Collins, they wrote, um, we know that neurons fire. We know that they're connected. We don't know how they act in concert to govern behavior. And then I, I think uh, there was a fun comment by Ab Martyr saying that the connectome was absolutely necessary and completely insufficient. And I, what she was emphasizing, and I guess going to your question, is I, I you know, why, so I'll ask as a grad student, why is it completely, like, do you agree with this statement and do you think it's completely insufficient? The connectome? Yeah, I mean, I think that the anatomy is one part of it, but then you have the dynamics, which. Yeah, and then, then you hit on it, right? The, I think the most interesting stuff that will come out for cell assemblies is the dynamic like the dynamics, what are the rules that govern the dynamic patterns, right? And, I, and you touched on something awesome. I thought it was like the systems, your, your level, what level of analysis are you at? Because we would, it, it's fun to think that neurons make up the brain, but we would never start a meteorological investigation by looking at nitrogen and oxygen, right? We would look at things like vague th- temperature, uh-huh. like take, 
which is many like a statistical measure of many molecules velocity wind and so you can jump scales quite easily and still be focusing on similar things but yeah i think the dynamics is where the, the most interesting the uh, most interesting things of the future for and if John didn't listen when we're live today, I'm sure he'd be infatuated by the dynamic patterns and the sequences that he sees evolving, especially with calcium imaging, which may give way to some insights here. But you said something about the rules that govern the dynamics. But the thing I was trying to talk about, about that, the perfect experimentist, experimentalist world, doesn't tell you anything about the rules. It just tells That's you right. what happens. That's right. And, the, and there's a... Um, some kind of a leap of faith where we think that if we could see it, if we could see the movie of all the neurons firing at whatever resolution we need, that we would look at that and we would go, oh, I get it. If I we had all the genes and we decoded the entire genome, we would cure every <laughs> genetic disease. So I'm wondering if, I think that if we could watch the movie of the brain doing what it was doing, we would learn a lot of things, but what we wouldn't learn were the rules that govern the dynamics. And uh, so I wonder, is, it, is there a more way to query the rules rather than the performance in this situation or in that situation? I worry that we're so early that the rules are still nebulous. What do you think? <laughs> what do you mean exactly by rules, though? The rules governing the dynamics. So it seems to me that if I knew the rules governing the dynamics, that means I would understand that parameter space that could be. Whereas if I have a movie of an animal doing something and I know what the neurons do at that time, then I know what happens in that very limited situation. It doesn't necessarily allow me to say, well, in some other situation, the movie's going to look like this. But if I understood the rules, then I would be able to predict the movie in any situation. I have a thought experiment that I always ask of graduate students is, it, if, I, if I knew ahead of time which neurons are going to fire in your brain when you go to Six Flags across the street, and I know that for a fact, and somehow I hop in my time machine, go back in time, and make those neurons fire in the appropriate pattern, do you have the Six Flags experience? And you've never been to that six. You've never been to Six Flags in uh, San Antonio. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think so. You, so you precognate uh, yeah. an experience that never happened. Because if you do, then what that says is like every infinite possibility that you could ever experience is already preordained in somehow in the synaptic or the the, the dynamic assemblies of your brain. I, I think about these things. I'm thinking. I don't think that's possible. I don't think I could, I, I think that there is a finite capacity somewhere that we couldn't pre-program every possibility into it. Hmm. And so I, 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 I wonder about these things and I think like, I don't know if we'll ever be able, given the state in one condition, I don't know with what precision we'll ever be able to say like, knowing this, that the, rat, the neurons fire like this in this environment, if I take the rats in the next environment, I may have a decent idea um, I, I can make some uh, probabilistic predictions, but no absolute. I, I think uh, the brain abhors absolute descriptions. Well, that's uh, right. There's this sort of computability problem that we ha that we don't know the answer to that. For that, it's a little bit like the Laplace's clockwork universe. If 
it really worked like that, we'd be able to predict everything already. So maybe uh, it's a good time for us to stop on that thought of trying to predict what our brain would do at Six Flags and then get the brain to do <laughs> that's it. A good, let's go to Six Flags. It's a good, it's a good we don't have that thought, actually. From yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a good note where to That's why he used that example. Right. So thanks a lot, Drew. Yeah, uh, cheers. And uh, Francesco. And of course, yeah. James. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.